You may have heard of autism before, but I bet you have never heard what our special guest doctor has to say about it. Today, we interviewed Dr. Ari Calhoun, one of the top experts on autism and other childhood brain development conditions. She helps us unpack this increasingly common diagnosis, and she shares some practical tips on how to support your child's brain development before pregnancy, in utero, and during early childhood in order to reduce the risks for autism and other neurodevelopment disorders. You do not want to miss this one. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be, from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep, through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. All right, I'm so excited to have our special guest, Dr. Eric Calhoun, today for our interview. Dr. Eric Calhoun is a perinatal and pediatric naturopathic doctor located in San Diego, where she owns and sees patients from her private medical practice, Brain Wholesome Brain Medicine. Dr. Calhoun's clinical focus is on pediatric neurodevelopment and neuropsychiatric conditions, including autism, ADHD, PANS, PANDAS, anxiety, and behavioral disorders. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Calhoun helps guide patients or parents in making the individualized vaccine decisions through her vaccine empowerment program. Beyond working with patients, Dr. Calhoun leads research for and is on the medical board of Needed, a supplement company geared toward providing comprehensive nutrition throughout pregnancy in order to improve maternal and offspring health outcomes. Oh my gosh, you're so impressive. So exciting. <laughs> thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, oh my gosh, perfect. this is such an important topic that hardly anyone in the whole world is talking about. So mm. we're so blessed to have you here. And that's about brain development and our children and how to prevent issues with that. And when we say neurodevelopment, give us, give our listeners a little explanation of what that means. Yeah. I mean, neurodevelopment is really a pretty broad term, Uh, essentially anything to do with the brain and its development. So that can include cognitive function, speech, motor aspects, behavioral um, components, uh, mood and um, different types of mood disorders. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty broad. I think when people think about neurodevelopment, they think about what are the conditions that are associated with disorder, neurodevelopment disorder. Right. So autism, ADHD, mm-hmm. developmental delays, speech disorders, and then a whole gamut of mental health yeah, disorders. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's such a specific and very interesting topic, but what kind of got you interested in this? Yeah, I know. I, I wish I had a really good explanation for this, but well, because I, I just want to say you're probably one of the only people like you had mentioned in the world, but you are such an expert in this specific field of optimizing the fetal brain in pregnancy. Almost no one is talking about this to the level of the knowledge that you have with it. So I just want to recognize like how yeah, cool that you is. You are so cool. How I'm amazing. <laughs> you are so you cool. Are so cool. <laughs> no, I appreciate, I mean, 
mean, you guys both know a little bit about my history, but I really started in infertility mm-hmm. and pregnancy, preconception, infertility. And then I was also just happened to be seeing kids at the mm-hmm. practice because I was the only provider who was also seeing the pediatric population. And as you know, from someone who sees kids, it's just, it's a um, you know, it's an epidemic of its own. And so you are going to see children with neurodevelopmental disorders. And so I was kind of almost like pushed into it to a sense. And then as soon as I started to kind of pull back the layers, I fell in love with this population and all just the, the benefits and the joys of working with this population. Oh, that's so cool. And you do know it on such a level because, you know, as an naturopathic doctor, you understand such a holistic level, but there's so many different touch points along a woman's journey and a child's journey where things could be optimized or where they could go wrong. Mm-hmm. So why don't you dive into some of like the risk factors or the, the things that we should be aware of? Yes, I think so. You know, with my history and you know, my own infertility journey and then working with couples with infertility, I really soon, well, I'll tell you this story. When I first sat down at my first autism um, conference, there was a lecture about maternal risk factors. And I had just had my daughter. She was probably about four months old at the time. And I was just sobbing. And I was sitting there just regretfully, you know, going through what I didn't know and what I had done quote unquote wrong throughout my own pregnancy. And I'm one that like you guys both know me, I don't harp on that. I don't, you know, have, you know, carry that guilt with me, Mm -hmm. but I just recognize like, this isn't well known and it should be like, this needs to be shared. And, um, this is such an important aspect Mm -hmm. of it should be such an important aspect of pregnancy and where we're placing our focus, but we're not. So we get people, you know, in my line of work at that time, it was like, we were focused on getting people pregnant and then ensuring that mom's healthy enough and that we carry baby to term and that baby has a good APGAR score and that's it. Yeah. You know, that (laughs) constitutes health, you know, (laughs) but we don't actually think about like, well, what are we doing to influence the child's health in the long term? And, you know, with just the rates of neurodevelopmental disorders with autism now at one in 30 with one in six children now having some form of neurodevelopment disorder, I really strongly believe, and it's really probably like my primary mission Mm -hmm. that we need to change the paradigm of perinatal care so that we are putting this at the forefront and really being mindful about how we can take steps to, you know, preventative measures to ensure that the child is starting with the best leg forward. Mm -hmm. Because we, I mean, I think as parents, we all know, like you have the child and you're, you are without even thinking about it. Cause I don't think people think like, oh, I'm, I'm concerned about their brain health, Mm -hmm. but we're doing things to stimulate their brain health. Like we're buying them all the Montessori gifts or Mm -hmm. the Montessori toys. We're like reading them books. We're like doing things Mm -hmm. to like support their brain health, their emotional connection. Mm But we totally, we went through nine months of pregnancy, not thinking about it at all. Right. Yeah. And I think too, that this is such a, um, again, like we have some episodes talking about the male infertility factor of low semen and the rate at which like you touched on autism and these neurodevelopmental disorders are coming about in society. 
is really scary. We don't have one particular finger to point at, at what the causes could be. And so we have some theories and some ideas, and there's definitely some data that suggests that there's these factors that you know so well. Mm -hmm. I think one of your really strong suits is that you know a lot of the genetics, the epigenetics, the actual particular SNPs, which is like a, a different variation of the way that your genes can be and all the interplay of this information. But like, we need to be recognizing that likely at least the best place to start in this is in the preconception and pregnancy period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that we, that there's something going on in this time period that is setting up these brains to be vulnerable to the other factors that they're going to experience when they're on, once they're on the outside of the womb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you go into that? Like some, yeah. when you said that you had this emotional reaction at this conference of a mental check looking back, like what are some of the things yeah. that you don't recommend women do or do instead? Yeah. So <laughs> I always like to start with like, we're all going <laughs> to encounter one of these risk factors. So, mm -hmm. you know, it just within my last pregnancy, I was very mindful and it's still like, you can't avoid everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just one thing it's like autism. I'm going to use autism a lot because I think that's mm -hmm. the, the neurodevelopment disorder that people are most familiar with and probably mm -hmm. is most feared. Although I'd like to remove that stigma around it a bit, but it is the one that people, you know, there's a lot of reason where parents want to try to avoid that for their, for their child. And so, but at any rate, I think that autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders are multifactorial. Mm -hmm. So like there is no one trigger. Um, it's multiple triggers with the genetics that will ultimately end up mm -hmm. in a neurodevelopmental disorder. So we are all going to encounter something, but um, I, you know, there's a number of things. So, you know, one of the things which I'm sure you've touched on a number of times within the podcast, because I know you're both passionate about it, but it's just toxins. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole variety of toxins within our environment, but I would break it down into three. Like we have our chemical toxins. So those are mm -hmm. things like BPA and phthalates, organophosphate pesticides, glyphosate. Mm -hmm. We have our heavy metals, mercury and lead some of the biggest ones in pregnancy and then mycotoxins, actually mold toxins are also mm. known to impact neurodevelopment. Not mm. all of them, but particular uh, ones are um, neurotoxins. And for anyone who doesn't know mold, you know, if you have mold growing on your blueberries in the fridge or whatever, there's lots of different types of mold. Some mold is toxic and makes a type of toxin called mycotoxins. Mm -hmm. So in case you're unfamiliar with what she's talking about, that's what that means. And it's not typically the mold on the blueberries, right? It's the mold yes. in the homes that mm -hmm. is growing the and black what, mold from water damaged buildings, that kind of exactly. thing. Whether you can see it or not, um, it's a big issue, especially living in certain coastal towns and areas. But even if you're not yeah. water leaks, if there's a known water leak at any point in the, the history of your home, looking into some of these things can be really, really vital. Yeah. So yeah. just for those who don't know what that 100%. Is. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this at, at some point, but it's, it's so important to do the testing because, mm -hmm. you know, we all, probably think we're doing our best and we are doing our best. Like everyone's trying to do their best, mm -hmm. but it's great to get a, a test and to recognize like, well, what am I being exposed to? Cause a lot of things we aren't really walking around knowing that we're right. exposed to mold or heavy metals or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then we discover it and we can do something about it. So this is great if someone's able to do this in the preconception time period, mm-hmm. but there's still benefit in doing it within pregnancy. Yeah. So toxins is a big one. And that's something that, you know, within our society has really changed over the years, especially from a chemical toxicity standpoint. Mm-hmm. Really quick. What are some of your tests that you like just so that the listeners can start to wrap their heads around the yeah. names of these things? I like you. I mean, urinary tests are my favorite and for an environmental toxicity test, my favorite ones from vibrant America, cause it's most common comprehensive, but Great Plains Labs also has one. And then mycotoxins, same thing, Great Plains Labs, Vibrant America has a mycotoxins. And then for heavy metals, it's a little bit more difficult, but you could start with just a blood test through your provider, like blood lead and blood uh, mercury. And that would give us at least some idea, mm-hmm. especially for individuals who have frequent fish consumption. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a great or idea or amalgams. Yes. If there's still amalgams and then definitely looking mm-hmm. at, uh, you could go deeper, um, but that's a great screening. Yeah. Toxins is huge. Uh, air pollution actually goes into that too. So a lot of actually probably one of the biggest ones from a research standpoint is air pollution. So air filters are great. So toxins. And then we have, um, well, the one that comes to mind and what's probably one of the things that I'm most interested in is any form of maternal immune activation Mm, or inflammation. You're very well-versed in this. And I think that this is kind of not something people are thinking about. So go into this. I love this. Yeah. So I think that again, if we are looking at what the research shows and what there's most evidence on in terms of what are the, the interplay between the maternal and the fetal brain, the maternal risk factors in the fetal brain, it's any type of inflammation experienced in pregnancy. So that could be from an infection. Mm. So uh, genital urinary infections, group B strep, mm. yeast infections, BV, UTIs. It could be from a respiratory tract infection, influenza, COVID, anything of that sort. It could be, you know, any type of infection that would trigger an inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. It could be autoimmunity. So an immune dysfunction. So autoimmunity, it could be atopic conditions like eczema, asthma, allergies. Mm. Um, it could be metabolic conditions. So that could be gestational diabetes, obesity, uh, preeclampsia. It could be psychological conditions, which are also inflammatory. So stress and depression. Mm -hmm. So all of these have a inflammatory response and that inflammatory response can really change a number of things um, for the baby through various pathways. So Mm -hmm. it can directly, there's various interesting ways that it can impact the baby's mm-hmm. brains, but essentially it can cause, you know, maternal inflammatory molecules can actually go straight through the placenta or straight yeah, through the placenta into the baby's brain. Wow. It can cause an inflammatory response at the placental level mm-hmm. and cause essentially like restricted oxygenation, restricted nutrient delivery, wow or just trigger an inflammatory response at the placental level, which triggers a response in the baby's brain, which this is actually interesting. I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but (laughs) the male to female ratio of autism is about four to one. And the male hormones are believed to trigger a greater inflammatory response at the placental level. And this is something that's potentially may be linked to this. So, but in a normally developing male fetal brain, there is this level of inflammation, but it's handled and it's managed and it's okay. But then potentially 
along with some other factors, it's too much inflammation then at the placental level? Yeah. I mean, I don't know in terms of like from a baseline, but in inflammatory conditions, it seems as though, um, you know, there's an extra inflammatory signal that's being conducted on the fetal immune side in male gender offspring. So that's really interesting, but essentially it can, what they call it is, um, you know, it can change epigenetics. That's another thing we can go into epigenetics and, and, and that whole realm. But one of the things that I think I really explain this to my patients, because it's easy for people to understand is that what happens is like these uh, immune cells of the brain called the microglia mm-hmm. are being set up within the brain during development. Mm-hmm. And the microglia in inflamed situations in an inflammatory situation in a mom become activated and they become pro-inflammatory. And this is like the priming of the brain. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of situations, you know, the autoimmunity might be at like a subclinical level or the infection might have not been super severe, but it primed the brain. So now they have extra extra microglia, they have extra, you know, more activated, more inflammatory microglia. So even though maybe baby when they're born aren't, isn't showing any signs, you'll see that further inflammatory signals through their early life development will continue to inflame, will continue to activate these microglia. Mm. They're sensitized. So, you know, this is where, I mean, we know so much about actually what I first learned is like autism really should be characterized as an immune system disorder. Mm -hmm. And we see such a greater, you know, risk of autism, a greater, um, percentage of children and offspring of mothers who have autoimmunity or who have some form of immune dysfunction in their, their family. So, Mm -hmm. wow, um, that is fascinating. Why do you think that, I mean, maybe you don't really know this answer and that's totally fine, but what would be the adaptive mechanism of that? Why would the microglia become this way and stay that way? Is it, is there some sort of mechanism where they should be kind of calming back down, becoming deactivated and then not, and we can influence that? Probably. I mean, like, I don't know that answer, but I would think like, you know, when you have immune cells, it's not that the microglia are, they're not there just to, they have a lot of different functions in the brain. Um, So they're not there just to cause issues. They are modulators in some sense, but they can, you know, in an inflamed situation, they can kind of adopt a pro-inflammatory state. So I don't, you know, I don't know from a biological perspective why this happens. I haven't come across that, but so interesting. So, So toxin exposure, potential immune Uh, activation in the mom or inflammation activation in the mom and then nutrient deficiencies is probably one of the biggest things that I see as well Mm -hmm. and obviously you know this is why I'm like so passionate about a really good prenatal and Mm -hmm. taking your nutrients but really key nutrients so Mm -hmm. choline DHA iodine which honestly in the health world is a lot of moms are iodine deficient because they're just not eating iodized salt they're not Mm -hmm. eating seaweed they're not eating seafood in pregnancy so they're Mm -hmm. iodine deficient iron is huge vitamin D zinc deficiency and high Mm -hmm. copper so, you know, those are a couple of the ones that I look at They're just nutrient deficiencies is big and then methylation. So like your folate and your B12 and the ratio of methylation. So methylation, you guys know, this is like, it impacts epigenetics, but mm-hmm. we don't want over methylation or under methylation, like yeah. too much. And, and for anyone who doesn't know methylation mm-hmm. is basically a process. Well, you can describe it, but it's a process in the body where a nutrient or a chemical or something is shifted. They actually have a CH3 group, if you know, um, chemistry to allow it to do something else. And like, Mm -hmm. it's a rudimentary understanding, but 
you have to methylate certain things for it to happen. And that can impact genetics and different things. Yeah. And from an epigenetic level, methylation actually turns the gene off and under methylation, essentially like the opposite of this acetylation turns the gene on. Mm. So you don't want to turn all your genes off and you don't want to turn on your genes on. So, you know, it's always, this comes down to like the more is not always better when it comes to nutrients. But- and that would support yes. my folate and tongue and lip tie yeah. uh, theory, which you can check out on the tongue and lip tie episode, yeah. which is again, just a theory, but that is really interesting information mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of research about epigenetics and certain genes being impacted from a methylation standpoint and being involved in the, the risk for autism, but also just how immune activation can change methylation patterns, which is fascinating. fascinating. It's like a chicken or the egg because the toxins can affect the immune function as well. So Mm -hmm. 100% and they can cause cyclical. Yeah. And I think too, just to just call out the current systemic structures that we're living under our topsoil is almost completely depleted. Mm -hmm. The food that we're growing, unless it's growing under a regenerative farming or permaculture type standpoint is very, it's almost like you would need to eat, you know, let's say this isn't the correct analogy, but say it would be 10 apples to get the nutrient impacts of an apple, you know, 50 years ago, something like that. It is significant and very severe. And then we're living in a continually more and more toxic environment as we produce plastics and chemicals and different synthetic materials that never existed before that our bodies have never had to, to, to detox or deal with. Mm-hmm. And then with these infections and our bodies can only handle so much. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily always an infection, but some kind of an inflammation though. Mm-hmm. If it's, yeah. if, if it's an infection or inflammation, inflammation, everyone is walking around inflamed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's what it really is like with the research really suggests. It's like, it's probably not the infections that are the bigger risk factor. It's probably more the inflammatory conditions, like the rise in obesity and mm-hmm. gestational diabetes and just type one and type stress, two diabetes like and stress and depression. So interesting. Like women who were in New York during nine 11 oh. have a higher, had like higher rates of children in special ed classes or wow. women who were in Louisiana with tropical storms had a higher rate of autism. Wow. So it's really so like acute stress off, obviously, but there's also just like chronic stress. Mm. Whoa. Wow, you're, That's amazing. You know, so many things. And so this is also <laughs> to say that like, as you said, and you touched on, I just want to repeat it because I don't want to freak anybody out yeah. who's pregnant or is looking into getting pregnant and thinking, oh my gosh, there's no way I can do this because I can't avoid all of these things and I can't do this perfectly and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we can't, and it's not realistic to think that nothing like this is ever going to happen throughout your pregnancy. But what we can do is use this knowledge as power and mitigate the stressors and mm-hmm. the impacts as much as possible. That would be things like looking at your health in the preconceptive period, which is something that we're so passionate about because it mm-hmm. does matter. Like this matters. This matters not only for your fertility and being able to get pregnant and carry a healthy pregnancy to term, then have a good birth experience because your baby's in the right position, your body is ready and healthy enough to birth baby and you're mentally ready as well for that. And then you're having a good postpartum because you're not depleted going into this experience, but then for the health of your child. And if not for the the purpose of the health of your child and looking into their future and the future generations of the world, also for your experience as a parent in parenting a child who Mm -hmm. is healthy and, you know, everybody wants a neurotypical child. Not that we're saying that, you know, it's to shame the neurodevelopmental child or, or sorry, the neurodiverse child, but we can recognize that this is becoming a 
big problem and that we need to be really thinking about this. And this all starts back before people even get pregnant. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that we can do to work on these factors. And then that's pretty much all we can do because we cannot stop the plastic. We cannot stop all of the, all the toxins from being dumped mm -hmm. in and all we can do, you know, eat the good food, etc. But at least we can have that sort of power and play and not feel like victims to this whole system that, oh, there's nothing that we could do. Da, da, da. Yes, there is some things. And as, as when we, when we kind of tap out those sources, then at least we can go to bed at night with the piece that we've done the best that we can. And then we deal with, you know, any repercussions that may be present or maybe not. Yeah. So what are your top like tips for that? Yeah, or are there things. any other categories yeah. outside of I would say the last one is nutrients. gastrointestinal microbiome. Oh. Um, you know, we start, we used to think the amniotic fluid is sterile. We now know that it's not and that mm -hmm. we're seeding our infant's microbiome. Oh my gosh. I actually just heard last week, a nurse in a, in a labor and delivery ward during a birth say that the amniotic fluid is sterile. And I was like, oh boy, this is so wild that this is, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, education know. takes time to mm -hmm. get to trickle down into these hospital systems. So anyway, you may continue to hear that and it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so we know that it's not sterile. We, it's very diverse. Yeah. And we are seeding our child's, you know, microbiome through pregnancy. And then obviously the mode of delivery is kind of a, a big inoculation of, of bacteria at that point. And so like as much as we can um, create a healthy microbiome in our vaginal canal, we want that for baby. And that's something that I'm looking at through early life development at a child and, and kind of like to support their development. We know there's a huge relationship there. But to your point, I think absolutely like we cannot stop life. I personally encountered with my son multiple risk factors through my pregnancy. And, you know, and I learned from that now. I mean, I'm continually learning. He's only six months and I've, since he's been born, I'm like, okay, if I have another child, I'm going to do this, 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 and this to mm -hmm. further support him. But like, I also have peace that I'm still doing, you know, everything I can on right now. But, um, at any rate, one of the coolest nutrients, if you don't come away with anything, but this, I would love every mom to take at least 450 milligrams of choline in pregnancy, but the research really shows that closer to 900 is better. And choline is so, so important for multiple aspects of just like regular neurodevelopment and function, mm -hmm. but it's been shown to protect against infection, COVID infection, wow. marijuana use, alcohol use use even in Later genetics on, you mean in the child's life or just yeah so okay. like so like no no in terms of you the, taking it so if mom let's just say mom got an infection in pregnancy that would have been a risk factor right. for neurodevelopment issues oh, if mom was taking choline during the time she got in the infection it mitigates that risk. oh wow if wow. she got covid it mitigates that risk if she got if she was smoking if she was drinking alcohol it mitigates that risk wow. if the she if her child has down syndrome it mitigates some of the risk it's wow. insane wow. even so like it's like from oh and it also will show that like some of the research is even showing that it mitigates the risk of alzheimer's later wow. on if mom oh, wow. is taking That's adequate acetylcholine is in our transcendental yes. memory yeah wow so you said just to repeat it again, 900 milligrams a day in pregnancy in pregnancy that would yep. be my goal yeah That's for awesome. sure so choline is very protective. I mean, I think that just like you said, you're just doing your best in terms of like limiting your toxin exposure where you can yeah. 
eating as diverse of foods as possible. Um, the next nutrient that I really like to focus on is something called sulforaphane, which is in cruciferous vegetables. Mm. It's really high in broccoli sprouts and you don't need excessive amounts of this, but, um, you know, sulforaphane is also an antioxidant. It's a precursor to glutathione, mm. which children with autism are found to be low in. Um, mm. it can mitigate some of the oxidative stress that could potentially cause brain damage. And so that's one research that's really, or one nutrient that's being heavily researched right now. It's also very good at helping with detox. So getting yeah. rid of toxins and chemicals. And so it kind of all mm-hmm. comes. Does it circle. go by another name ever, or is it always sulforaphane? You can see it as broccoli sprouts extract okay. or, um, but sulforaphane glucor- glucorophane is like the, um, another kind of sister uh, molecule, molecule yeah that they could go by as well but sulforaphane is probably the one most common so those two I really love I mean there's a number of things like that so n-acetylcysteine which you can use for infertility or like recurrent miscarriages but you can also use it as like a brain protecting nutrient melatonin is being heavily studied mm-hmm. and actually at high doses um not that I'm recommending this because it's still being studied um I'll use it with some of my patients just depending you know as I know the patient history but but melatonin, some of these are great with it. Some of them don't, but I actually feel like the vast majority of the research shows that it's safe. And if anything, it's neuroprotective. And then like at what doses? So melatonin is a <laughs> yeah. hormone we naturally make at nighttime. It helps us sleep. Yeah. But a so, lot of times when people are taking it for sleep, it's between one and three milligrams. That's what I would recommend on a daily basis, mm-hmm. or at least what I recommend to my patients on a daily basis. However, the research, what they're doing trials on right now is anywhere between eight milligrams and 30 milligrams mm-hmm. in inflamed situations. I mean, that is the dose that they yep. use for cancer. Breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah. cancer. And then COVID, if we think about it as yeah. using as an anti-inflammatory, we're using it mm-hmm. 10 milligrams and above. So, you know, again, I think it's like, we don't have long-term it's, you know, pregnancy yep. is such a hard population to study. Mm-hmm. And so it takes years and years and years and years and years, um, and lots of pilot trials before you get a big clinical trial, but mm-hmm. there are trials out here now that are utilizing 30 milligrams. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Awesome. And obviously they're taking this at night. Yeah. Well, some of them are actually taking them like twice daily, not 30 milligrams, but like there's some of them that are dosing twice daily. And you wouldn't be, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I would not survive that study. (laughs) I would take it at night. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really cool molecules. I mean, really cool kind of nutraceuticals and the works really things that are anti-inflammatory, but I really just focus on like ensuring, I think one of the things that we can do is like something like choline, Mm -hmm. super safe. We know we have the data to show that Mm -hmm. we know that it can really like, no matter what the exposure is so far, we've found benefit with it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the others. And so that can be like protective can, can offer you some level of security in that fact that we're all going to experience exposures. And then on the other side of this is like just making sure you're adequate, like your nutrient is adequate. So a serum iodine level, just making sure you're at least within range, if possible above 60, a vitamin D for neurodevelopment, it's best above 50. And you what know, was the folate you said you wanted above 900? 400, oh, 400, yeah. For, for in blood work, ferritin for iron. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if your doctor is only measuring your hemoglobin and hematocrit, that's actually not what the World Health Organization is recommending. The World Health Organization says, no, we actually need to be looking at ferritin, which is oh iron God, storage. Finally coming <laughs> yeah. And they even recommend for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And that they recommend 
recommend, you know, should be, I mean, definitely above 20, but ideally above 40. So mm-hmm. along Good. with the functional mm-hmm. medicine recommendations, um, so we need, you know, iron is huge and you might've talked about this, but like something even such as like delayed cord clamping yes. can really increase the amount of iron that is, um, available to baby through their first year of life just by delaying cord clamping. So I just have to touch note on here, which is that there is this tenant that breast milk is low in iron and that we need to be like, you know, very cognizant of baby's iron status. And I think that a lot of these studies have not been taking into account how much the immediate cord clamping potentially has a play in do, is it breast milk or is it the way that we've been, we were born who knows, because we don't have enough data yet with babies who were delayed cord clamped mm-hmm. in a consistent manner yeah, to say through the first done. year of and life. For anyone who doesn't know, delayed cord clamping is when you have your baby who was born, <laughs> the umbilical cord is usually cut right quick, quick, quickly, and they don't get all of the blood from the placenta. Delaying that allows them to, to get all of the blood into their body. And if you do delayed cord clamping, they get way more nutrients, it can be, way more blood, way more iron. Yeah, it can be up to a third of their total blood volume that was hanging out in the cord and in the placenta. And that is baby's blood. That is not mother's blood. It is baby's blood that belongs mm-hmm. to them and that has been cycling through them. And all we have to do is wait a couple of minutes. It doesn't yeah. take a long time. It actually doesn't take that long at all. No. Like yeah. they call delayed cord camping anything past 30 seconds or 15 yeah. seconds. Is something oh ridiculous. my God. But, but for neurodevelopment, they show that at least 90 seconds, but closer yeah. to three minutes is better. I mean, but three minutes, like most people can do three minutes. Yes, exactly. Um, Even in a cesarean now, if it's a planned cesarean or if it's a non-emergent situation, they can hang out. The baby can be either held by mom or, you know, the surgeon, this is a, something that in some of these progressive hospitals they're already doing, or at least they're open and accepting of the idea of doing it. But hopefully more and more as time goes on, they'll, they'll continue to do this because we know it's so important for baby. And, and it's now so you're, easy to do. It's and so it's easy. so preventative. And it's so, so many physiologically things. logical to give the baby all the blood that they came <laughs> into the world with. And not put them straight and bathe them. Right yes, away. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So Do not bathe your baby. Okay, and so when you're talking too. about these nutrients, you know, the choline, mm-hmm. the iron, the folate, this is all for mom to yeah, have in preconception mm-hmm. or pregnancy time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, my biggest thing is like, we are so much of brain development is really already determined when baby's born. Mm-hmm. And, and so like we're seeing brain scans at six months and they can already determine like who's going to have autism, who's not. Oh, so wow. we can't say that. And not that there aren't other influences because there already, there definitely are, mm-hmm. but we can't, this is a critical period in neurodevelopment that we're completely ignoring. Oh, yeah. It's so <laughs> completely ignoring. So, and so, so, that's so frustrating for you because this is your wheelhouse. Yeah, no, and, it is. And, and so for a lot of people, you know, I'm going to go there and you can touch on it yeah. as much as you want, but so we've talked about preconception and the pregnancy yeah. period. A lot of people, I think, have the assumption that autism or other neurodevelopmental things happen from like a single event, like later in their life, maybe yeah. a vaccine or something like that. Can you speak to some of those events and maybe like why it seems like this one thing tr- caused it or triggered it? Or yeah. Whatever? So, I mean, I think it still can happen where there's a child who's developing normally, and then there is a particular event where there's a subsequent regression and the child develops symptoms. I see it all the time. And that's where we see this like, okay, it's the immune prime 
Okay. So in functional medicine, we would call this, there's the antecedents, mm -hmm. meaning the things that are contributing to this dysfunction over time. And then there's a trigger. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, it's just a matter of timeline. Mm -hmm. Whereas like the straw if, that broke the camel's back 100%. So I think there's already, there's this priming and that's what the research calls it. It's like priming of the microglia or priming of the brain mm -hmm. towards this particular disorder. And then there can be that final trigger where the symptoms then develop. So that's one thing. The other part of this is that, which is tricky. And then you're going to hear the more conventional side argue is just that you can't fully assess neurodevelopment like some of the symptoms are not as apparent when the child's younger mm -hmm. until they essentially reach a point where they're not keeping up and they can't compensate for it mm -hmm. and then those symptoms become more apparent so it's probably a little bit of a combination of both there are definitely clients of mine that say totally neurotypical and then one day not mm -hmm. or speaking you know I don't know, in sentences and now nonverbal, but a lot of them feel like maybe there was something wrong, but nothing apparent. And then right around this time, I started noticing something more significant. Yeah. So there's usually some signs. And so, you know, it is tricky and I don't want to scare people. And the other part of this is like, I did emphasize the importance of preconception and pregnancy, but I'll also say that even if you experienced a lot of risk factors, that does not mean that there's not like recover the, the child's non-recoverable at that mm -hmm, point like totally. the brain is so malleable mm -hmm. until at least three three years of age but i would say five years of age like mm -hmm. is this golden opportunity to change pathways to re you know integrate these synapses and really mm -hmm. support brain function and so there's so much you can do and really change over this time period if we are um, proactive about it um, but and that's like the work that you do that. I just want to recognize how many lives and families that you've changed oh, in the work that you do. It's like, I, I have the best job ever because it's just so rewarding to be able to like work with these families and, and see the, these children, their transformations, and then be able to see what an impact that made not only for the child, but for the family. So, yeah. yeah. And I Sorry. just want to speak about this. We've talked about this and I think it would be interesting for our you know, listeners is that, you know, a lot of this conversation and the conventional model is things like vaccines don't cause autism. Other people saying, no, I totally had a normal child. I got vaccinated and I had issues. You're saying it's multifactorial. Maybe there were other factors at play. That's why it's hard to say one way or another. But the interesting thing you told me about is that there's some interesting information about Tylenol use. Mm. Can you like yes. speak to that or maybe what your thought is around it? Is it even the vaccine? Is it the infection? Like, well, is there anything you can say on that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, there's could, some of this is a little bit blurred. And then some of this, like I do have thoughts about vaccinations um, and I'm having all use in pregnancy as well. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Tylenol use in pregnancy is what's more studied. And there was a position statement put out by the journal nature in 2021 that essentially stated like, Hey guys, like we have to stop recommending Tylenol for every ache and pain because mm -hmm. it's associated with a number of neurodevelopment conditions. So mm -hmm. especially for longer dur duration, longer than five days is associated with an increased risk of autism and ADHD and reproductive abnormalities um, and asthma and lower IQ in children. So, wow. and they're not exactly sure. Like we know that Tylenol can impact particular aspects of the brain directly. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe how it controls pain. But then maybe also because it 
it interrupts the, the normal like homeostasis we have with pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. So we really don't mm-hmm. want every, like there's, we need some pro-inflammatory action too. It's not mm-hmm. just like that we want no inflammation. Right. Yeah. So I don't know that we have a good understanding of why, but mm-hmm. we do know that Tylenol use is something that is likely contributing to an increased yeah, risk. I mean, here. I think that's good for people to know because yeah. I think if something's sold over the counter at the drugstore, they just assume it's safe and can take it anytime yeah. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I actually can't remember this, I should know this, but they either suggest it or they are going to put a black box yeah, I know there's a lawsuit right now. About yeah. Tylenol. Yeah. There is a lawsuit out there. So if you've experienced, if you're a, a mom of a child with autism, took Tylenol or any other derivative of acetaminophen in pregnancy, there is a lawsuit going on right now. So absolutely mm-hmm. Tylenol and other medications too. It's not just Tylenol, there's seizure medications, SSRIs have been implicated. Mm-hmm. I mean that we could go on epidurals, like there's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, on and on, but Tylenol is one that is like a hot topic right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of good data around it. And then, you know, the Tylenol in early childhood has also been subject to question, but there's not as much data on that right yet, but the data we have does show that that could also potentially be a risk factor. And similarly, we're using this for teething pre and post prophylactically vaccinations. And so again, is it the vaccination or is it the large amount of Tylenol that you took Mm -hmm. prophylactically? And go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say, and this is kind of an aside back to the idea though, of a trigger, like one way that many parents may be able to if they have an understanding, although this is sort of a, a not as common, but pans and pandas, mm. yeah. th- this idea of how neurodevelopment can be different literally overnight mm-hmm. can be from an immune activation of something that's caused by an infection of some form. Pandas is the strep, but pans, it can be many different things. Yeah. Line. So- but, but your, these parents are seeing their children going from completely normal yeah. developing and then literally overnight have a set of different neurodevelopmental disorders, maybe like tics or restrictive eating or obsessive compulsive disorder or um, behaviors, uh, rage and mood and behavioral things, sleep disturbances. And it's like a completely different child overnight. So this isn't a, a conspiracy theory, the idea that things can flip very quickly. And that if things were teetering on some kind of an edge and then there was just a push, Mm -hmm. that straw. So this is within the realm of what we know is possible. And so, although they're maybe saying it's hard to quantify or measure neurodevelopmental, you know, times up until like three years old or something like that, we do know, right? Like we know, and you work in the pans and pandas world as well. And so these things, whether it's the Tylenol, whether it's the vaccine, whether it's a another medication, antibiotics, some kind of a surgery or something, an event, that is just the one that boom, now it tips it over and these things begin to happen and these changes happen in the brain. Yeah. And that's what we 100%. think. 100%. And like speaking to that, one of the things that they are looking at in terms of like autoimmunity and mom, does that increase the risk of, it does. We know that 
autoimmunity mom increases risk of autism in the child. But one of the mechanisms they're looking at is anti-brain antibodies. So we know that there are anti-brain antibodies that are found in children in higher numbers in of children who have a mom who had autoimmunity in pregnancy. But you think about that because we know in autoimmunity, one of the concepts we can we talk about is something called molecular mimicry, whereas the body encounters something that it does not like. It views as an outside invader a pathogen and it tags it for attack. But that thing looks so similar to another thing within the brain, like another region within the brain. And this is what happens in pans and pandas, but we see it as well in autism that well now the body isn't just attacking this thing, but it's attacking regions of the body. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe there is an infection mm-hmm. like a bacteria that for some reason, the brain got tagged as also bad. Yeah. Or and that the so, antibody, is it that the yes, antibody, the antibody is the tag? Yeah. Mm, it's that the, the, essentially the, the infection looks similar to the, the brain. region oh. of the brain and the body is tagging the infection, but it's also mistagging this other region mm-hmm. that the components look similar. Mm-hmm. Why does that, so, do we know why that happens? just this concept i mean like we have like it's a puzzle piece and the body is trying to find these puzzle pieces and it's like oh this is a puzzle piece like this matches and then they're trying to attack let's say this bacteria that has like three prongs well there's also a region of the brain that has three prongs right and so it's like oh this like this must be a bacteria too Let's it's almost it. like ai gone wrong where you're like yes uh-huh. you're, you know you think you're gonna go have your little robot clean up yeah the weeds in your garden and then it pulls out all your flowers and you're like no yes 100 yeah, <laughs> Maybe there is something we don't understand yet of what makes the immune system not as intelligent, just like cancer, you know, cancer is growing and the immune system is there. It's just cancer has figured out a way to hide from the immune system. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, there's these little tricky things. And I think that's part of like the genetics there, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's where you have like your HLA and and, you know, these like genetics that, Mm -hmm. that determine who's susceptible. I always say, and it's not in like a morbid or really like depressing way, but like we've all been dealt a bad card, like Mm -hmm. of some sort. So like some people are going to develop Alzheimer's when their body goes in a state of dysfunction. Some people it's autoimmunity, other people's cardiovascular disease, others cancer, but it's like, we all have genetics that are going to like throw us down a pathway mm-hmm. when things get disrupted. And for some people that's immune dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that does play a big role in neurodevelopment because mm-hmm. we're seeing, even if it's not antibodies, it's inflammation. It's this chronic inflammatory state, mm-hmm. um, that it, it at least plays a part of the role. Maybe it's not the whole picture, but it's a part of the puzzle piece in a lot of cases. Wow. That's so great. So what do you want to leave like a mom <laughs> or a woman who's not even pregnant yet with of just like, what are like the kind of big concepts or tips or tricks or anything that you would like yeah. love to put into her mind? Besides those wonderful supplements that you listed earlier too, because yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think the biggest thing is like, I don't want moms to live in a state of fear and, um, and actually that stress can be pro-inflammatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so be aware of it, don't stress. <laughs> yeah. But it's that, I mean, unfortunately I would love to turn them to their doctors because you shouldn't have to do this on your own. And um, maybe one day I'll have the answer for that. But right now I don't. But I think it's wise in the preconception time period to be looking at your toxins, not because you're struggling with infertility, but because you want Mm -hmm. to create a really healthy environment for your child to grow. So Mm -hmm. be on a comprehensive prenatal prior to conception, at Mm -hmm. least three months if possible, um, and be taking that through 
throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding, like mm-hmm. breastfeeding, the demands increase further. And then really mindfully thinking about, you know, if you do have an autoimmune condition, like what can you do to kind of decrease that activity mm-hmm. as much as possible. It's not perfect. I have an autoimmune condition, but it's like, what can we do to support that prior to pregnancy, get our body as healthy as possible. It's really just about like, you don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. No one's going to be perfect, mm-hmm. yeah. but what can I do around whether you're pregnant right now or whether you're in your preconception to get my body as healthy as possible? Cause that's not just impacting the health of the pregnancy, mm-hmm. but it is really setting the health of your child up long-term. Yes. Okay. Gosh, you know so much. <laughs> so smart. I feel like I like say like, you know, the health of preconception oh. and pregnancy is important for the long-term health of the child, but then you actually know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and because you are confused and I don't, but I just, I know it's important, right? You know, the you know how important stuff. it is, yeah. right? And, and you both do, you know, working yeah. in pediatrics, but um, totally, no, it's such a so helpful. This is the whole point of us doing this is that we really want to help empower, educate, inspire, and you know, just get the word out there that there is things that you can do if you haven't become pregnant yet, or if you are pregnant, and then even later on, like you said, mm-hmm. but that we can set ourselves up for healthy children, healthy motherhood experiences, and your overall life is to be the best that it can be. Mm-hmm. And this is what we wish, we wish the world, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. our top wishes, if we mm-hmm. could, is that everybody feels healthy and is thriving. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you want to add? Or no, you I think that was, that was great. I'm, you know, I'm so happy you guys are joining this. And I think I just want to reach as many moms as possible because my biggest regret is like, you know, the, the moms that come into my office and just say to me, like, I wish I would have known, like, I don't want to hear that anymore. Um, I don't want to hear, like, I wish I would have known and it'd be in the scenario where we're now have an eight-year-old that we didn't intervene with early enough. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, this well, is thank amazing. you for everything that you do and all of the re- hours and hours that you spend researching because <laughs> I, I know you. You are yes, incredibly above and beyond well in your work with women, children, and families. No, so thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for other women to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you. Please remember that the ideas and views presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease. Consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. Now go have a wonderful day. You've got this.